The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. A man named John was sent from God. He came for testimony to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify to the light. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to ask him, Who are you? He admitted, and did not deny it, but admitted, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, What are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? So we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say for yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the desert, Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Some Pharisees were also sent. They asked him, Why then do you baptize, if you are not the Christ, or Elijah, or the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but there is one among you whom you do not recognize, the one who is coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. This happened in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The Gospel of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The Lord is near. That's the entrance antiphon for today's Mass. And it gives us the words by which this Sunday is traditionally uh, recalled. Gaudete Sunday, meaning rejoicing, rejoicing Sunday. It's a Sunday where we are indeed invited by the Mother Church to lift up our hearts a bit. We know that uh, Advent, although we more typically we practice Lent as a penitential season, we know that Advent, by donning the, uh, the purple, is itself a penitential season uh, as well, a season of preparation, of preparing our hearts for our Christ. And in both of those seasons, we have this one particular weekend, the third weekend of Advent and the fourth in Lent, where in which Mother Church invites us to lift up our hearts a bit, to remember the nearness of the Lord, that our penance has an end, and it is coming soon. Soon there will be rejoicing. We don the rose-colored vestments. We're permitted in the liturgy to have flowers at the altar. And we come and we hear the word again struck like a bell, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And so we come, we come to rejoice, to lift up our hearts in the Lord, to give thanks to God. Each week when we pray the creed, we profess the four marks of the church, that the church is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. But today there's a sort of addendum added to that by St. Paul. There are also three attributes that we ought to find in the church. And we hear it spoken to the Thessalonians as the encouragement to them. Rejoice always. We must be a joyful church. Pray without ceasing. We must be a praying church. And in all circumstances, give thanks. We must be a thankful church. 
joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. Indeed, it doesn't take a long stretch for us to recognize that these things are intimately connected. They are tied together necessarily, one flowing from the other. Today we hear once again from the prophet Isaiah in our first reading. Isaiah, who is that great prophet, the prophet, uh, as he's referred to in the scriptures very frequently, the one who comes to prophesy about the Messiah. And so we read him continuously throughout this holy season, again and again, pointing to the things that are to come. It's a simple fact that in Isaiah, in the beginning of the book, things seem to be pretty well. The temple is present. They're in Israel. Life is good. They're rejoicing in God, rejoicing in God's blessings, even if they're not necessarily rejoicing wholeheartedly in the Lord. But something happens in the middle part of the Isaiah, such that the last part of Isaiah is a deep, deep lament in so many ways. It's a prophesying about all the things that are to come, and this is the part that we get especially during Advent, the promises of God. The thing that happened was the Babylonian exile. Babylon came in and crushed Israel. They destroyed the temple. And when you would do, when, what would happen in exile is you wouldn't just take everybody, you wouldn't just leave the people in one place, you wouldn't take everybody to an individual spot, lest they have an uprising, lest everybody, they kind of, they gather together and, and stage a coup to overcome, you know, to overthrow whatever was happening. And so to ensure that there was not a, a, a rebellion after, after the being conquered by a foreign nation, they would take a group of the best and brightest and send them off to this city, send a group off to that city, send a group off to that city, group, and, and so basically pl- split them in small enough groups that they could have no real power and then send them out all throughout the empire. In a sense, everything the Israelites knew ceased to exist. They had no temple. It seemed that the Lord might have abandoned them. They had lost their homes. They had lost their families. They had lost their community. They had lost their, their, their moral system. They had lost everything and been simply sent off to these foreign lands. And you can imagine the, the darkness of the hearts that ensued. And it's in that place that Isaiah comes. And this is why it's such good news whenever he says that the, the Lord comes and the Lord is proclaiming a year of favor. Captives are to be set free. That's the Israelites, right? They've been set free. The Lord is coming. Something is about to happen. Lift up your hearts. There is hope here. There is hope. The things that Isaiah prophesies, of course, would take place in his own day. And eventually the people, of, the people in exile in Babylon would ultimately return to Israel and rebuild the temple, rebuild their country, their community, their family, their nation. And there would be a sort of restoration Hope was fulfilled. But we see it ultimately in the person of Christ. He who comes and reads the passage from Isaiah to proclaim a new coming, something entirely new taking place, a new reason to rejoice, to rejoice heartily in the Lord. The simple fact is that we rejoice because the Lord is near to us and he's fulfilling his promises.
Again, that's what the entrance Anavon tells us. It's from St. Paul. Rejoice, again I say rejoice, the Lord is near. We rejoice because of his closeness to us. The people in exile necessarily had to turn to the Lord. Even though it was difficult for them, he was the only thing that might have been stable. And even if they might have had questions in their heart of where is God in this? How can God allow this? Still, they were called to persevere in prayer. They trusted in the Lord. They trusted in his goodness. They trusted that the words that Isaiah was speaking to them would be fulfilled. And they held on to hope. And that hope was not in vain. They would come home. It would take a good while, but they would come home. And for our own situation today, the same applies for us. In so many ways, whether in short in the Advent season, whether it's just in the, the, the reality of our own lives, it is easy for us to allow uh, a spirit of discouragement to come in, a spirit of confusion, a spirit of unrest to come to our hearts, whether because the, 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 the social, uh, social reality in our country, the political reality in our country, the, the, the reality of life in the church uh, that continues to, you know, it seems like every other day there's a new scandal for us to talk about. And so many other these things, it can be a great discouragement to our hearts. And to all of this, the Lord says, rejoice, rejoice. And St. Paul gives us the instructions on how. First, to be thankful, to recognize the blessings that we have, to recognize the gifts that God has given to us, even if they come in a sort of veiled way. I've often been reminded of the woman who prayed in thanksgiving for her dirty laundry because it meant she had clothes. Sometimes we have to be creative in our gratitudes. But first, to be thankful for what we have, even if we don't have much, to be thankful for it. Because indeed, these things are all signs of God's care for us. So first, to give thanks. Secondly, to pray without ceasing. To turn to God, and not simply to give thanks to the universe as our world would like to do it today. It's foolishness. We give thanks to a God, a person, one in heaven, who is three, mindful of us, caring for us, watching over us, listening to our cries, not deaf to our pleas. Just as with the Israelites, the Lord heard them, and he responded. And the Lord, too, hears us. He hears us in our need, whether in our slavery to our sins, our slavery to the reality of this world, our difficulties in this life, the sorrows that we experience necessarily here, because none of us escapes the cross. In all of these things, we can bring them in prayer to Christ and be mindful that there is always hope, that the Lord is faithful to us, that he plays the long game, and he is coming. He's coming to be with us. And this is the part that ought to bring us that last piece of joy, to rejoice always because the Lord is near. 
Indeed, we ought to rejoice more than any other Christian community, we as Catholics, because we know that he is here. Not just in a, a sort of spiritual sense, a, a, a numinous sense that, you know, God is kind of uh, omnipresent and, you know, is kind of uh, vaguely around. He's here. He's, he's right there. He's with us. Already he's fulfilling his promise. I am with you always, he told the disciples before he left. And he wants to come to us again. Every Mass, like a little mini coming of Christ, as he comes to us, that we might be able to receive him and be filled with rejoicing at the fulfillment of the promise of our Christ. Indeed, brothers and sisters, let us rejoice, rejoice always, because our Lord is very, very near.